0: Jeremiah 2, unusual message tonight. You won't need to take any notes, as it were. There's no points. There's a point (laughs) to the message, but no points, as it were. But just a message from Jeremiah, a message from God through Jeremiah, um, in, in general, in whole, that I want us to hear. To that end, I want you to look again at our text, notice if you would, how God likens his relationship to his people, to that of a marriage. Chapter 2, verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember. I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. In other words, God is reminiscing here really for the people. God is remembering what it used to be like when the relationship was similar to an engaged or newlywed couple. And how that then, back in those days, God's people sought the Lord in the wilderness. He says, as a bride seeks for her husband's affection. Verse 3 says, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. That means God's people were set apart. They were special. And yes, they were betrothed to the God of creation. And he says, I remember that. I remember in verse 3 how I defended you, how I blessed you against all the attacks of your own enemies. But now, now God says that memory is nothing but a memory. A long time ago, I wrote in the margin of the Bible that I have in my office, right next to verse 2, four words, the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. I remember back in Bible college, pastors would come and preach in chapel and Some of them would say, you know, a new pastor, when they come into town, a new pastor always has a honeymoon period. Anytime he comes and he takes a new church, supposedly, they said, about two years. And, of course, that's why a lot of pastors, you know, they leave every two years. They want one honeymoon after another. Pretty pathetic if you ask me. Can you imagine a wife getting a new husband every two years? I mean, okay, J-Lo, yeah, she can imagine it quite well. (laughs) She made five films about weddings, you know, the wedding planner and marrying this latest one, whatever it is. And she's been married five times. If I was her husband, I'd say, don't make, don't have a, uh, make another movie about weddings. Amen. Hollywood has nothing to say to us about weddings and marriages. Amen. Absolutely nothing. Verse 32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. The bride, as he's remembering, the bride has forgotten the groom. And, and what does God say in verse 2? Yet I have not forgotten you. He says, I remember. God himself remembers. He's reminiscing again. But you know, unlike us, it's not for the sake of nostalgia. It is not for her pining away for the, quote, good old days. Not at all. When God says, I remember in verse 2, we recognize he's not needful. It's not even for the I am to ever be nostalgic. God wanted them to remember for now. He is the I am. When Vance Havner was asked to lead another trip to the Holy Land, he said, no. He said, I don't want to go in his inimitable voice. I don't want to go where God was. I want to go where God is and God is here. Let me ask you, do you remember? Do you remember when you were excited About the Bible, going to church, handing a lost soul a tract. Do you remember how your heart was touched? Your heart was touched by the grace of God. This is what God is desiring here. You understand that the people here in Jerusalem at the time, they haven't forgotten how to offer sacrifices. No, they remembered that. They haven't forgotten how to light their golden candles or how to read a scroll, how to give some alms, or to greet a rabbi correctly. they have just forgotten how to love, how to serve, how to follow God with a full heart. Verse 32 again says, Can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten, and they've forgotten me, he says. Now think about that. God says, can a bride forget her attire. Does a woman ever forget her wedding dress? No. Not on her wedding night and not a hundred years later. Can you imagine asking a woman, what was your wedding dress like? And she says, I don't know. Did it have a veil? Did it have a train? I don't know. What color was it? I, I guess it was white. I don't know. You would think that either her mind is messed up or her marriage is messed up. Because nothing is as personal or heartfelt or hopeful, nothing is as loving as a bride's choice of what to wear in the eyes of her groom on the day of her wedding. So you see, God is deliberately using a picture. He's using a picture that speaks directly to the heart. One of devotion. One of sincerity and love. And that's why he pleads in verse 9. That's why he says in verse 13, they have forsaken me. Not my candlesticks, not the tent. They have forsaken me, he says. These are the predecessors you'll see in a moment to the Pharisees. And that Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 15 and verse 8. With your lips you honor me. It's called lip service. But your heart, your heart is far from me. And guess which one God wants first and the most? I counseled a young man this week, and he said, Pastor, I feel like I've, I've made too many bad decisions. Pastor Blalock, I feel like I've ignored God too many times. I don't think that he wants me back. Well, what, guess what verse I showed him since I've been studying this prior to that. I showed him chapter 3, verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, another's, shall he return to her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Wow. You ever read the book of Hosea? God's love and God's mercy knows no bounds. I remember thee, God says. I remember you, and I remember your wedding dress. You don't. I remember the kindness of your youth, the love of a bride, the following, he says, that you had those days in the wilderness, and I plead with you as with mine own, come back to full fellowship. In fact, if you really want to see how personal God expresses this, look again at the last line of verse 32. He says, yet my people have forgotten me days without number days it had been centuries but you see beloved god counted the time that his people are away from him in days not years all the days good and bad you'll notice verse 6 of chapter 2 mentions the wilderness and how they travel through deserts and pits and drought and the shadow of death Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness, through the lands of desert and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. What's God doing? Beloved, he's remembering and he's reminiscing for their benefit. This picture of an espoused couple. And by the way, I remind you that in the wilderness, it was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God would move as that pillar. And when God would move, they would move. And when God stopped, they would stop and rest with him. So that it was always like this. Always. Which is exactly the way newlyweds and engaged couples are. And God says, I remember that. I remember it. You know, sometimes when I'm counseling with couples in the church and some who are encouraged to come by the office, not from the church. I'll find out that there are marriages that are in deep trouble, big trouble. And oftentimes it's couples who've been married for 10 and 20 years, and yet they're tense, they're angry, they're upset, resentful. And the air in my office is very hostile. You know, I've learned through the years this. I've learned that one of the best ways to begin at least the conversation Thus, one of the best ways to begin the healing process is I just start by asking, where did you meet? How did you meet? Tell me about yourselves. Tell me how you fell in love. And as soon as they start talking about it, the mood begins to soften. They usually smile for the first time they've been in my office. And the whole atmosphere is sweeter and less tense. And you know what I found very interesting as well? That usually they speak of fondness of their wilderness. They speak in terms of fondness of the years of drought and the pits when they didn't have much except for each other and each other's love. And again, this is exactly what God is doing in this text. Jeremiah, go and cry unto the ears of all Jerusalem and tell them, Thus saith the Lord, I remember this. I remember the kindness of thy youth and the love of thine espousals. You went after me in the wilderness. When I moved, you moved. And when I stopped, you stopped. But something happened. Now, God says, someone else has stolen your affection. So that while you are chasing and running after idols, you haven't even noticed that I'm gone. Chapter 2, look at verse 8. The priest said, Not where is the Lord? You might want to take your pen tonight and underline three words. We're going to read the rest of verse 8, by which God identifies the causes, the sources of the initial reasons for these people to drift away. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do no profit. So notice that, these three things, the priests, the pastors, the prophets. The priests, as you all know, were responsible to represent man to God. They were the spiritual guardians of that land. The problem is they were so far away from God that though he had removed his hand, they didn't even ask, where's the Lord? They thought because they were going through these motions of the law, that that God was there. They didn't know that God wasn't even there in His power. They handled the law, but they had forsaken the lawgiver. And then he says, the pastors transgressed against me. Now, obviously, if you know this, pastors in the Old Testament are not the Jim Blaylocks or the Brother Martins. They weren't those kinds of pastors. They were the civil leaders, the authorities, the princes, the magistrates that were supposed to lead these people with justice under God. The prophets, the third, of course, they're supposed to represent God to man. But do you notice the last line of verse 8? They prophesied by Baal. Wow. They represented Baal instead of Jehovah. Do priests and prophets do that, pastor? They do it in almost every single seminary in America today. So that you see in all three aspects of leadership, the leaders are failing the people. And that was the beginning point where God places the blame. So that I want to say that for this reason. It matters what kind of a parent you are. It matters what kind of a grandparent you are. And let me say this as well. It matters the place that you, that you place your marriage and your children, who you place those folks under. Influence matters to God. And now he says something shocking in the next two verses. In fact, Look ahead to verse 12 and notice what he says about those two verses. Verse 12 says, Be astonished, be astonished, O ye heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Be very, be very desolate, that means aghast, saith the Lord. In other words, what God says in verses 11 and 12 and what he's about to say, but what he said prior is so shocking and outrageous that the heavens should shudder at the thought of it. Astonished, desolate, meaning aghast. Again, so what is it that God says that makes heaven shudder? The heavens, verse ten. For pass over the isles of Chidim. Chidim is the island of Cyprus. It was inhabited by pagan Phoenicians. He says, and see, and then send to Qadar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Qadar refers to the Arabs, the Bedouins. Basically, all he's saying, what God is saying here is simply go from the east to the west. Go from the pagan nations to idolatrous tent dwellers and see if you could find such a thing as what? As this, this that makes heaven shudder. Verse 11. Half a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods. Now, wait a minute. Lest you think this is no big deal, consider for a moment what God is saying. Please hear this. He's saying that in all of heathendom, nations do not exchange their idols. They don't exchange their gods. They might add to their pantheon. Of course, they do that all the time. But pagans were very resolute. You don't mess with their deities. And he says, no nation ever traded their gods. And then what he say? Which are no gods. They're not even real. They're powerless. They're not even deities. And yet, verse 11, hath a nation changed their gods, which are no gods? But my people have changed their glory, their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid, be ye very desolate, saith the Lord. God says, no nation does this. The pagans don't do this. No nation is willing to trade its gods with another. But Israel did. My people did. And of course the part that's astonishing and fearful is the fact God says that they traded away the true God, their glory they traded away their glory. They exchanged their creator, their redeemer, who had delivered them from Egypt and led them through that wilderness. They traded Jehovah for Baal. And then God says, let me illustrate this for you. Verse 13, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, me, the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now follow me. What's the difference? What's the difference between a cistern and a fountain of living water? Because you know what? The people of Jeremiah's day certainly knew. How does this picture the nations and their two evils? Well, a fountain of living water refers to a spring. A fountain of living water refers to that which is the source of constant and ever-flowing, fresh, sweet water that gives life. Water that, as you know, is liquid gold in the land of Israel. A spring was a symbol of life, and that's what God was always to his people. He was a fountain of living water. The same thing that Jesus said that he is inside of us. The second covenant is better than the first. Amen. But now, what is the comparison of a cistern? It says in verse 13 that they have hewn out cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. The word hued is a reminder that they basically just excavated these holes in the ground into the rock. It's a hole dug deep into a rock to serve as a holding tank for rainwater. The problem is cisterns were constantly contaminated with bugs and leaves and dirt and worms and mud and then, of course, stagnation. And when it did not stagnate, it simply leaked through and it wasn't there when they needed it. Cisterns were always broken. And God says, that's what you traded? You traded away your glory? You traded away the fountain of living water for something that leaks? That's untrustworthy? You know, if you think about it for a moment, few things are more unreliable and harmful than something that leaks. Friday night, Ben and I went to the hospital, Good Sam, after midnight, and of course I wanted to park as closely as I could. And I had to go to the ER. And in part because my car was on fumes and I I wanted to leave it running for Ben as I went inside. If you're familiar with the south entrance of Good Samaritan, you know that it's all handicap spots. I don't have a handicap permit, but my mom does. And it's in the glove box. It's after midnight. Nobody's using these spots. They're everywhere. And Ben looks at me. I said, open the glove box. He looks at me, a little Pharisee. <laughs> There's a dozen of these spots. There's no one going to use them. I didn't even pick the closest one. I picked the farthest one just so I could go in that entrance and leave the car running because I'm on fumes. I see a police officer. He's been looking at me the entire time. He's the one who stands out there on guard. Now folks, when I've been sitting for a long time, like in a long drive, sometimes when I get out, I kind of limp a little bit. (laughs) No, for real, I do. (laughs) Like the two or three steps. And it's about two or three steps to that door. But I'm feeling all kinds of guilty because of Ben. <laughs> so I decide to open the door. I look at the cop and and I go. Park here, yeah, yeah. And he just goes like that. Go on. I uh, th- that's the first time that I have ever asked for permission and forgiveness at the same time, amen. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole time I'm in there and I'm praying with them and enjoying my time with them, honestly. The thing I was most grateful for is that I knew that out there in my car that I left running on fumes, that my gas tank had enough because it didn't leak. I could trust it. In Jeremiah, God's people willingly, willingly put away a trusted fountain of living water. And they looked at this fake, false deity made by man called Baal that leaked. It's a broken cistern. No matter what you put in it, it will be of no value to you. And I thought about that, and I thought, no wonder the honeymoon was over. The bride had forsaken the groom. By the way, not a deadbeat, unfaithful, unloving, unappealing groom either. This was their redeemer, their hero, their deliverer, the God of glory. When I was 19 years of age, first year student in Bible college, I remember coming out of a, a long bout with strep throat. It was the second time I had gotten it that year. And I lost credit for a class, <laughs> leadership of all things, I lost credit for that because I overabsenced. And then struggling to get a new ministry started up in Chicago that now was floundering because of this. And th- then I was homesick. It's cold and tired. I was discouraged. In fact, I was really discouraged. And as is often the the case, discouragement can lead to apathy. And apathy leads to coldness of heart. It was the second semester, and I thought about the possibility of not returning again after that summer. I was drifting. And when you drift, spiritually, if you're drifting, you're always, always drifting away. One night, late in the night, I went down to the school's little store. It was called Peddler's Way. It was the only place they kept open almost all night long. And it was really sort of a basement area. This was a former monastery. And so just everything echoed off of the walls. And while I was down there, I heard a song. That song was reverberating through those halls, and it was a trio. And they were singing the words by Dr. John R. Rice, Let the sun shine again. Let the flowers bloom again. Stir the embers of love in my heart. Holy Spirit, reprove, then embrace me again. Let the sun shine again in my heart. And I listened to all of it, all the verses in the chorus. And as I leaned against that wall and listened to those words, tears were just streaming down my face, and I realized that it wasn't God who wanted me to drift. It certainly wasn't God who ended the honeymoon. And as I closed my eyes and just leaned against the wall and I prayed to the Lord in that hallway, I learned a wonderful, valuable lesson of the Christian life. In fact, it's my favorite part of tonight's text. It says in verse 9, look at it, Wherefore, I will yet plead with you. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Plead? God wanted them back? Remember what we read earlier about the last line of chapter 3, verse 1. Yet return again unto me, saith the Lord. In other words, God doesn't want the honeymoon to be over. God has not ever given up on you. The Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, he didn't give up on those churches. He didn't even give up on the worst church. He said, remember and repent. Come back. Or eventually he said, you keep drifting and you keep drifting, the coldness and the spiritual apathy will take its toll. There's a very famous story about Leonardo Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper. He had just finished the basic outline of, of the painting on the wall in that church building. He started then searching in the streets of Milan for people who could model for him all of the disciples and he was most concerned about John. Da Vinci said he, he needed a young man who was, in his words, truly devout, who had the look of serenity on his face. And finally he found that man and he asked him, he said, listen, listen, would you please pose for me? And the man agreed and he was exactly what Da Vinci was looking for. As months turned to a year and a year turned into two years, you know, it took over three years to paint that painting. Leonardo da Vinci came then to the face of Judas. Once again, he was met with a challenge. And you know, obviously this time he needed someone with a look of bitterness and and sort of foreboding. You've seen the the painting, you've seen it. He needed a man who was not devout, whose face revealed that he wasn't. And he searched through the streets and he finally found the man. But da Vinci didn't have the heart to tell him what he was painting and what his subject was, was sitting for, so he didn't until it was nearly finished. And The man went around and looked at the painting, and when he saw it, he began to weep. He hung his head, and he said, he said, Da Vinci, you don't remember me, but I posed for you over two years ago. Since then, I've been living a life of sin and self. I was the man who posed as the Apostle John. And all those years of drifting, had taken, They always take their toll. I remember, God says, I remember thee. I remember the kindness and the love of thy youth and of thine espousals. God remembers our first love. That's why he says you've lost your first love. That's what he remembers. Like that love that you had for Jesus when you first got saved or when you first got revived. He remembers our first zeal and devotion we once had. And that's wonderful. But the greatest news of all is what he says now. When he says to all of us who are prone to wander, he just says return. Pastor, this is what the young man asked me the other day. He's watching now. How long is it going to take me to get right with God? I said, one moment. He's here, you're here. It's the direction you're going, and you can change direction right now. And beloved, I would say to those of you who are watching and those in this room, and I don't know everybody or your heart, forget about the broken cisterns of man and come back now. Come back tonight to the fountain of living water. And whether you have wandered a long, long way off like a prodigal son, whether you're far away in a far country or whether it's just a hint of coldness in your heart right now towards God, God is bidding you to return and to stay. Because for a Christian and his relationship with God, the honeymoon is never over. His mercies are new every day. His grace is sufficient every day. I'm going to close in a minute, but I want you to notice a familiar description. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor, And what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Why are you so enamored with the other? Don't you just love it when certain elites in America tell us that we should be more like Europe? That, you know, for 50 years they told us, at least when I was in high school, that we should be more like the Soviet Union. There's a lot we can learn and a lot we can copy from their wonderful socialism. And then that collapsed. And then there was a good long period when they told us we need to be more like the Far East with its zen and karma. And now it's enlightened Europe. Oh, you Christians holding us back from all the the freedoms and the the progressive thought of France and Great Britain and Norway. These are sophisticated and elite people. Are they? Is Washington, D.C. elite? Is the bail of New York Times? Is Canada, L.A., San Francisco... Remember those three groups that we read about in in verse 8? They were the very definition of the elitist and the secularist in that land. The priests, the prophets, and, and the princes. And so often, yes, it is. It's the leaders in our universities and our seminaries and our media and our jurisprudence. And definitely entertainment, you young people. Definitely entertainment. And they love to consider themselves far more sophisticated than some church-going, Bible-believing, Jeremiah-type. But before we close, I want you to notice something. Because it's perspective. And it's God's perspective. I want you to notice how God describes the real condition of the sophisticates in the land of Israel. It's not very pretty, but it sure is revealing. Look at verse 23. How canst thou say... I am not polluted. There's nothing wrong with me. How can Sel say that? I have not gone after Balaam. See thy way in the valley. Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. A wild ass used to the wilderness that stuffeth up the wind at her pleasure to her occasion who can turn her away. All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. Now, folks, listen, there are some euphemisms here, and I'm thankful for them, and I'll not be just too descriptive. But you know what God is saying here. Anybody who's worked around horses knows what a mare is like in season. Look at chapter 5 for a minute. Look at verse 7. How shall I pardon thee for this? Thy children have forsaken me and sworn by them that are no gods. When I had fed them to the full, then they had committed adultery. They assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were as fed horses. In the morning, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. In other words, look. God doesn't look at these sophisticated, enlightened priests and prophets and judges and princes as anything else, as anything enviable, admirable, elite. He looks at them in their spiritual infidelity and the Bible says he compares them to wild animals running after everything that moves. In a few weeks on March the 12th, the Academy Awards is going to be televised to the whole world. And oh yeah, that place is going to be filled with elites and their black ties and their tuxedos and their red carpets. Very wealthy, very famous, very talented Very influential people who wear four hundred thousand dollar dresses and five hundred thousand dollar necklaces. And they will arrive in their stretch limos and they will dine on three hundred dollar fillets and they will spend the night awarding and rewarding one another for their very sophisticated and enlightened what? Movies. Not saving lives, mind you, not finding cures for cancer, not winning a war, not building a hospital. Not rescuing someone drowning in a river. Oh, no, no, these are movies. Movies and films that by and large glorify the worst in man and despise this book and the people of this book. And of course, when they look at each other and they award each other and they give their speeches and they talk to each other and see themselves as enlightened and gifted above all. And from their podium will say things that deride you in what you believe. I wonder if the God of heaven doesn't look down as in the days of Jeremiah and simply see a bunch of wild mares out of control in blindness and bondage. God says, Jeremiah, tell it to the ears of Jerusalem. Tell the people that heaven is aghast, that your God shudders at the fact that they're willing to do what no nation ever does with their false gods. They are willing to trade the true God, their glory, the Bible says, their Redeemer for broken cisterns. But also, tell them this. Tell them that I'm pleading for them to return. Tell them that I remember what it used to be like as a young bride and their espousals when they went after me in the wilderness, tell them to return. I don't know who tonight, here, or listening needed this message. But I know somebody did. I know somebody did. I know that God wants you to return. Because he loves you. And he redeemed you. And he owns you. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I wonder who would say this more tonight. Pastor Blalock, I'm saved by the grace of God. I have been redeemed from the wilderness, rescued. And I'm a child of God, but I needed the message. And God has spoken to my my heart about something as a child of God with no one looking. Who would say that? Would you lift your hands through the building? That's me, Pastor. All right. God sees your heart in your hand. And I'm going to say this again. Even if you're just starting to grow a little cold, don't forget, God says, First love. He's worthy of your first love. First. Always. Maybe someone here tonight's not saved. Someone watching at home is not saved. Pastor Blake, that's me. I don't know. If I died today, I'd be in heaven, but I'd like I need to know it and I want to know it. Could we pray for you? Somebody like that. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you raise your hand right where you are? We just want to pray for you. All right. God bless you. We're going to have a time of invitation, of course, and Brother Kevin will come and lead us in a hymn. Brother Andy will be at the front if you need to speak with someone. Or just use the altar. Maybe you just need to come and say, Lord, help me not. Help me not to take for granted the redemption, the salvation, the love of thine espousals. Help me not to do it. Father, bless now the invitation. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Father, that we as your people have the Holy Spirit within us and a fountain of living water and the everlasting life. And I pray, God, that in no way would we as your people be enamored with, with Balaam, with the gods of this world, with the so-called sophisticated ones who deride your word in what we believe. Help us always always be faithful and true to you. Bless these after prayer, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's BeaconBaptistChurch.org. May the Lord bless you.